Amen. Amen. Thank you, Janelle. Thank you, Kim. That was a great update, and we really appreciate that. And, uh, you know, <clears throat> she's talking, and it, it's so true. You actually teed up part of my message for me today, so thank you. But the world over, I mean, it's filled with distresses all, all over the place. And as a church community, we want to keep our eyes and our hearts open as to how it is we can help, how we can be the hands and feet of Jesus, how we can demonstrate God's grace into this world wherever we can to bring relief. Obviously, you know, we pray about that. We keep our neighbors to the east who just suffered a hurricane. And with that, we want to keep our uh, <clears throat> our, our eyes open and, and uh, ready to help in the recovery there to, to the best of our ability. So this morning, uh, we're going to continue our study in the Gospel of John. And if you've got a way of following along with us, if you'd like to, head over to John chapter 12, please. Last week we finished up chapter 11 where the plot to kill Jesus was getting fully uh, cemented into place by the religious leaders at that time. And we looked at the contrast of motives that we saw in play in this between Jesus and those who were using religion as a means of gaining power over people. Today we're going to journey with Jesus back to Bethany, back to Jerusalem for the Passover. Bethany, of course, is where the previous drama that we just read about unfolded, where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And just to remind you, uh, chapters 11 and 12, which we're in right now, sort of bridge between the book of signs and the book of glory, which is how John is structured. Um, so in chapters 11 and 12, we're reading about the preparation for glory. We're, we're reading a section where thematically Christ's kingship is in view. Jesus uh, uh, being inaugurated, we could say, as king. Uh, so we're going to read an account that, honestly, you know, it's, it's a puzzling account to us as Westerners, and it prompts difficult questions about poverty and stewardship. But on a theological level, it presents us with a coronation to power that radically inverts our normal assumptions about power and rule as we've seen it play out in, in this world. And it's a repeated theme. I'm just warning you about that. This, we're going to be touching on things that we touched on last week, and we're going to touch on it again next week. But John, in this gospel, has concentrated these themes here because he's trying to get a message to us. We, as the readers of this, as followers of Jesus, want to get our hearts open to hear, and to recognize what it is that's being communicated in this. And still, within this complex theology that's being revealed here, we're also presented with the example of deep devotion to Jesus as Lord and King. And that's primarily what we're going to consider as we look at this this morning and how it might apply to our own lives today, how we can, just like we were singing this morning, how we can move into that kind of devotion and love for Jesus. So if you're there in John chapter 12, we're going to begin at the beginning, starting with verse 1. It says, Six days before the Passover celebration began, Jesus arrived in Bethany, the home of Lazarus, the man he had raised from the dead. A dinner was prepared in Jesus' honor. Martha served, and Lazarus was among those who ate with him. Then Mary took a 12-ounce jar of expensive perfume made from the essence of nard, which whatever that means. Anyway, and, and she anointed Jesus' feet with it, wiping his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance. 
Uh, all four Gospels contain this story or a variant on this story that communicates pretty much the same thing. I, I don't want to bog down on all the ways in which we try to harmonize it. It could be two different events. It may be the same event, but just told from different angles. Uh, to have to bog down with trying to figure out how to harmonize that is not what I want to do today. We're, we're here in the Gospel of John, and we want to hear what John is trying to communicate to us. We're going to focus on that. But in this account, Jesus is at Lazarus's house, and Mary and Martha are there. And I love how the personality of these two women come through here as well. In, in Luke's Gospel, in chapter 10, there's a controversy that erupts because Martha is in uh, cooking and preparing a meal. Somebody's got to do it. But Mary is is scandalously out learning with the men at Jesus' feet. And it's a whole thing. It's very interesting. And here we see the same kind of thing is happening. Martha's still making sure that dinner's ready. Good. We need that. But Mary's doing something quite differently. She's doing something else. And as they're reclining at dinner, Mary comes and, and pours a bottle of perfume on Jesus. And John highlights that it's his feet. Um, the other Gospels mention his head. So if we were to try to harmonize it, we could say maybe there was a lot. It's 12 ounces. So, you know, maybe from the head to feet or whatever. But John is particular in wanting to make sure that we notice the feet, that we're at the opposite end of, of things than, than the head. And, and, and then she wiped his feet with her hair. Uh, look, I just got to say, as a 21st century American, this is weird. Uh, I, I'm very uncomfortable with this whole scene right here. Uh, you know, can you imagine being at a dinner party and the host comes up and just starts dumping oil on your feet and wiping your feet? I'd be just like, oh, this is nice. I got to go now. <laughs> got to go take a shower. Uh, but see, but actually, that's the point. Because in that time and place, you didn't have access to showers on the regular like we do. And, and you know, even the most wealthy people uh, of that time were not going to be bathing as often as we do. Uh, but, but certainly those who were underneath the, the higher level echelons of societal uh, structures were not having access to regular baths or bathhouses or anything like that. They'd bathe in rivers whenever they could. And, and so, you know, that wasn't always often. So given the heat of that region, and we can assume that most people, based on our modern sensibilities, most people walked around with a certain odiferous funk about them. And so to have someone provide perfumed oil for you, to, to not only mask that funk, but actually make the whole place, it says the whole room was filled with the fragrance. Everybody gets in on, on this. It's nice. So we get that what was happening there, as much as it's weird for us as Westerners, what was happening, and it was a good thing. This is why this was a good thing, even though it's strange. But the details are actually meant to create a focus here. This is what John and even the other gospel writers are trying to do. It's a 12-ounce uh, jar of expensive perfumed oil and it's totally poured out. And, and verse 5 will tell us later, Judas estimates the value of that oil in the Greek at 300 denarii, which is almost $17,000 in today's economy. Anybody have a $17,000? Don't, don't tell me if you do. But it's a, that's a, I mean, a $17,000 bottle of perfume, and you just dumped that thing uh, all over. I mean... That's obviously, now listen, that's a loose comparison. We really don't know what, what it would be dollar for dollar. But we get the picture that this is wildly expensive stuff she has just completely poured out. She didn't, you know, she didn't just grab something at Dollar General on the way over to the party. Yeah, Jesus is like that, maybe. Yeah, it looked like it was open before. But we know from antiquity that 
these types of perfume jars existed. We have found them, actually. They're usually sealed. And we also know that they were oftentimes, because of their expense and value, they were passed down as family heirlooms. This was kind of like, you know, somebody's inheritance that we're talking about here. Uh, it was an investment that was made to provide for the family. So Mary is giving up everything in this gesture to express her devotion to Jesus. And this detail provides our first observation, and that is that when we recognize that Jesus is our king and what that means, it will prompt a sacrificial devotion in us. What she did was an act of pure adoration for Jesus. It's an over-the-top desire to express gratitude. And we think, well, why? Well, why? He just raised her brother from the dead. She had said goodbye to her brother for four days. She had been grieving because she thought he was gone. And then he came back to her. Wow. Just, I mean, such a mind-blowing, wonderful turn of events. It's no wonder she's expressing this that way. I think her extravagant expression of worship pictures our response to Christ's extravagant love for us in that he provides for us a new life and new meaning and new purpose through him we understand our own value it's an example i believe what we see playing out an example of reciprocal love she doesn't appear to pour out that oil in hopes of getting a special blessing from jesus somewhere down the line or get on his good side you know maybe earn his favor by giving everything that she has That doesn't seem to be in view in this at all. No, she seems to do this from a motive of wanting to express back to him the kind of love that she's received. And that is the ultimate basis for any act of worship that we do, for any kind of worship that we participate in. Uh, You know, as John puts it later on in 1 John 4.10, this is love. It's not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And sent his son as a sacrifice that deals with our sins. God's love expressed to us in these sacrificial terms inspires us to return a sacrificial love to him. That's the only real basis for worship. A desire to love like we've been loved. I mean, that's part of what we're doing here this morning. I mean, that's why, why we're here. These Sunday meetings are an intentional disruption to our week. We, we set aside our own personal interests we leave our comfy couch and and our homes in order to gather here to worship god this is an act this is a sacrificial act i mean you know you could say well that doesn't seem all that sacrificial well i mean relatively i suppose not but it still is this is like i said something that we intentionally do i mean maybe you stumbled in here by accident today and if you did hey welcome (laughs) we're a mess too but uh uh this is, this is what the whole concept here. We don't show up on, on Sunday and sing songs and pray and study this Bible in order to get God to like us or God to stay on, you know, happy with us or on his good side. We do this because we're grateful for the love that he's shown us and the life that we found in him. We're drawn to this because this is how we are able to express that back. And oftentimes we're expressing it by loving for loving one another as well. So when Jesus is the object of our love, when we recognize him as king, as the, as the one who's reached out to save us, to infuse our lives with meaning and value and purpose, we're prompted to love sacrificially in return. So Mary does this beautiful sacrificial act of devotion, and it prompts a response, uh, which we'll read about here in verse 4. 
But Judas Iscariot, the disciple who would soon betray him, said, that perfume was worth a year's wages. It should have been sold and the money given to the poor. Not a bad point, actually. Uh, But then we get to verse 6. Not that he cared for the poor. He was a thief. And since he was in charge of the disciples' money, he often stole some of it for himself. Jesus replied, leave her alone. She did this in preparation for my burial. You'll always have the poor among you, but you'll not always have me. And when all the people heard of Jesus' arrival, they flocked to see him and also to see Lazarus, the man that Jesus had raised from the dead. You can imagine the spectacle of that. And then the leading priests decided, yeah, kill Lazarus too, for it was because of him that many people had deserted them and believed in Jesus. And that's uh, where we'll be stopping uh, today. Uh, so, man, these religious leaders, like <laughs> the way they're portrayed here, they're kind of falling into a, you know, kill them all mentality. Uh, it's a, you know, they're never asking if God may be up to something because somebody who was dead like this has been raised back to life. No, nope, it's just, you know what? We got to put Lazarus back where he belongs in the grave. Uh, and, and it's all about the loss of power. Right? People are leaving them and they're going over to Jesus. They're leaving our church and going to that church. I hate them. We'll kill them. <laughs> that's, just, that's just the attitude that's being presented here. And that's the corrupting force of this world's concept of power. And notice it's all about keeping their place of power. That's why everything that Jesus does through his entire gospel, and especially as we move into the book of glory and his passion, it is inverting the norms of this world's concept of power. And we'll look at that a little more in here in just a minute. But first, let's look at this complaint over this anointing that Mary has done. And it's interesting that in all the other gospel accounts, the synoptic gospel accounts, this same complaint is registered, but it's all the disciples who complain. But in John's gospel, he just singles out one dude. Yeah, old Judas, that guy. (laughs) And I don't know. It's an interesting thing to me. I, I, you know, I don't know. Maybe he was the first one to initiate this outrage, right? Maybe he was looking at it. Maybe he pulled out his phone and snapped a picture of Mary as she's pouring all this oil on Jesus' feet and he's just jumping on social media right away saying hashtag waste, hashtag what about the poor question mark, hashtag sad. And, and, and the disciples' phones are all blowing up and they're looking at it going, he's right, this is terrible, this is hashtag cancel Mary. And it's just, you know, the serpent has stoked the rage. But I mean, that's how that sort of things happen. It doesn't matter about the technology or the time. That's just the way the serpent works in this world. John makes sure that we know that Judas's virtue signaling here was just a filter he was applying there. It was not real. His real motive was greed, was self-interest, like we talked about last week. The complaint about this act of devotion, you know, this complaint is, is, is highlighted in all the Gospels too, which is interesting to me. Uh, and there's a message in this, I believe, for us. I believe... John, who's so focused on Jesus being anointed as king. This anointing is important. I think it's a warning that living sacrificially is often criticized by those who nearly want to use Jesus for their own ends, for their own goals. John's gospel is the only one that actually points out Jesus, Judas's thievery. Uh, and without that little detail, honestly, Judas's motives are very perplexing. 
And it's a hard thing to kind of puzzle through. Like, this guy's right on. He's sent out with the 70 doing miracles. There's nobody ever said in any of those counts. You know, everybody did miracles except for Judas. It was weird. All he did was just rub his hands together and laugh. He was right there with everybody. So what happened? How did he turn? What? Well, now John gives us this detail. And we're able to recognize Judas, Judas wasn't so much a, a disciple who was following Jesus as he was a person using Jesus as he grasped for something else. And that, we see, has always been present within the community of Christ. This alternate goal has always been here, something that we've got to recognize and reject in our own lives. The monetary element of this is important because, I mean, it's really, it's, it's, a, it's a universal human issue, but I would say it really hits home in our society, the one that we're living in, because money, I mean, is largely the god of this culture. I, I think we've got to recognize that. I mean, consider, I was thinking about this the other day. You think about people who come, people of means who come to Christ. I don't know that I've ever heard a complaint Like, that person has too much. That person has too much money to be a follower of Jesus. You know, we'll come up with a lot of other things that we say they can't or they shouldn't have or they shouldn't do. They can't be a follower of Jesus that way. I don't think in my lifetime of following Jesus, I've ever heard someone say, well, they got too much to follow. How can can they be followers of Jesus with that much? I don't know that I've heard that because we don't think like that. Uh, you know, but you walk away from a real career. <laughs> you walk away from something saying, you know what? I think God's put it on my heart to do something else. I'm leaving this all behind. People will go crazy. Well, you're just wasting your opportunity. You're just ruining your life by doing this. It's a weird kind of thing that we've got to think about. Our, our value system is, is leveraged by this society to prioritize something that the biblical record does not. And so we have to look at it. I look at if you're a person of means thinking I'm picking on you, I'm not. Because I'm not saying that a person can't be a follower of Jesus. I'm saying that it's dependent on your, your heart before the Lord. But, but, but what place does money have in all of this as we're examining it? Judas tried to make it sound more pious by pointing to the poor, leveraging their plight so that he'd look good in this. But Jesus countered that there's always opportunities to take care of the poor. That's the nature of this broken world. But Mary was not always going to have the opportunity to show her devotion to Jesus this way if she didn't do it right then. That's what his point is. Jesus' response to the the poor always going to be with us was not at all intended to get a cynical uh, about the poor. You know, "Ah, there's always poor people. What are you going to do? And I've heard that expressed that way to me before. Well, Jesus said there's always going to be poor, so forget it. And I'm like, I don't think that's what he meant by that. Uh, he's emphasizing his timeline. Giving to the poor is an assumed... Like I said, Kim set that up. It's an assumed responsibility of the believer. That's the ongoing activity of God's children, to care for those in need and to bring relief to the poor. The reality is this, this extravagant devotion for Jesus as king may very well be criticized by our fellow person if if we're if we're sincere in this and determined in it but but you notice who doesn't criticize her and actually who is it that defends her in this whole thing it's really interesting to me i mean if we're sincere in our love for god and jesus alone is receiving that devotion as king 
then who cares what somebody thinks uh, of how we're pursuing this, of the sacrificial love that we're expressing or our, our loyalty uh, to, to Christ in these things. If Jesus receives it, then he's our defender. What do we have to fear? What would we have to fear in that? We can risk living sacrificially and extravagant in our love for God. And we show that extravagant love for God, as Jesus put in other places, by loving our fellow human being. These are the two greatest commandments. It fulfills everything that the law was about. So as Jesus is defending her in verse 7, he makes this statement that all of the Gospels repeat that she did this in preparation for my burial. That is the main point of this whole section. And we see that what Mary did actually ended up being this prophetic gesture. It was forecasting that Jesus was going to die and be buried. Uh, Later on, you know, when this actually happens, sorry to spoil the story for you if you don't know it, but this is going to happen to Jesus. They'll bring spices just like this to the tomb to anoint his body, the, the, the corpse. That's how they buried people in those days. It was to mitigate the odor. You'd put the corpse in a tomb. It kind of decays. Well, not kind of. It decays. And, and, and then they go in later on and gather up the bones and put them in a stone ossuary. And we got a lot of those that we found, uh, archaeologists have found from that region. So Mary, by doing this, she was forecasting Jesus' death. But here's the thing, this act of anointing, that's what's really, that's what really throws this whole thing. Like we, we see what Jesus said, this is in preparation for my burial. Okay, we make that connection right there, but we've actually got to step back into the Old Testament to this whole narrative that leads up to this point. And this whole idea of anointing, if you're interested in even doing a deeper dive on that, the Bible Project has a wonderful podcast series on anointing. But this whole act of anointing, is, is rife with meaning within the biblical text in, in terms of the entire narrative that leads from the Old Testament. It's a, it's a pattern uh, that's, that's been in play where God anoints a person for his service, a chosen leader, you could say. So Aaron was anointed when he became priest, anointed with oil. Saul and David and every king after was anointed with oil in a ceremony that symbolized God sending his heavenly life into the person to accomplish their purposes. So even the word Messiah, when we talk about Jesus Christ or Messiah, Messiah means the anointed one, God's chosen leader, God's chosen king in this. So, I mean, there's this whole thread, a repeated pattern over and over again through the Old Testament, right up to this point where Jesus is anointed in Bethany, anointed as God's chosen king, but it's all inverted. And in John's gospel, he's highlighting, it's not the head, it's the feet that's in this. And the point is powerful and it's deeply meaningful for us who follow Jesus. And that is that Jesus has become king by sacrificially giving his life out of love for us. That's how Jesus became king. That's how Jesus overcomes the world. The symbol of anointing a king as he was coronated in the Old Testament was meant to be a celebration of this person's power and their, their new rule, but it was still within that context, this rule over people. But Jesus, in being anointed as king, is being anointed for death. John is telling us something mind-blowing here. And like I said, the pattern from the Old Testament leads us here, but then it gets this creative twist that just inverts the whole thing. And this inversion isn't meant to dismiss or invalidate 
the, the narrative that it leads up to it, but it makes this astounding revelation, this point that is repeated in each gospel that Jesus became king through his death and resurrection. He begins his reign by giving his life instead of taking power through violent force. Completely different from how this world works. Jesus ascends his throne by dying, which makes his throne the symbol of his power and his reign in this world is the cross on which he died. This is all backwards from the way this world operates. But Jesus states it plainly later on in chapter 18. He's going to be before Pilate. And he'll say to him, but Pilate's saying, are you a king? And he goes, well, kind of, but, but my kingdom's not like the kingdoms of this world. That's what he says. My kingdom is not of this world. He doesn't mean it's off in space somewhere. He's saying it's not operating the way the kingdoms of this world do. Otherwise, we'd be using weapons right now, is what he said. No, Jesus rose to power and conquered and overcame the world by giving his life sacrificially in love. The cross is his throne. You know, as evangelicals, we we see the cross and we usually only think of personal salvation. That's kind of the way we've been trained. And it's, I mean, certainly it does symbolize that to an extent. Each of us individually has to make that commitment, but that brings us part into something that, that is much bigger than just our individual selves. But it's also more than that as well. It's also, this cross is the representation of Jesus' reign as King of kings and Lord over lords. It's the, the template for those of us who are his disciples, who follow him as his church, the, the cross is our template. It's not just a, an image that we use to, you know, to put out in front of our weapons of war. It's something else altogether. It's a template. Jesus overcame this world by giving his life, by laying it down. It's, it's alarming to me that we as the church think that, okay, fine, but... Where's my weapons? (laughs) Let me go take care of this now. It was quiet in here. So this, this, this contrast that we see here, the, 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 the contrast that we see between Mary and Judas in this, in this light of Jesus ascending his throne, of becoming king and of overcoming this world, it's an, it's an astounding contrast that's represented here. One is giving all in devotion and sacrificial love for her king, emulating Christ's loving way in advance of his death. And the other intently focused on how to gain more for himself, scheming to make himself a king over the rubble of this broken place. Two different motives, two different things that we see at the foot of this throne, at the foot of this cross that's about to be unveiled. What a contrast of devotion, but not only that, what a contrast of kingdoms. So the, the story is here. It's, it's put in this account. This gospel is presented to us. Or we could say we present ourselves before this gospel. And it's our regular thing to ask, to ask God by the work of his spirit to conform us to this gospel, to conform us to this Jesus that we worship, that we want to worship. And so each of us has to examine ourselves in this. 
What kingdom do I identify with? What kingdom is highlighted here? And which kingdom is going to lead me home? Let's allow this story to guide us into faithful devotion to Jesus as King. Let's learn from and follow His ways. Look, it's scary. Everything that I'm saying here, all of this stuff that we're talking about, this is scary stuff. It is. I get that. It's backwards from the normal ways in which the world works. And each one of us can be cruising through our minds, thinking about the ramifications if I actually live this out. Well, what happens to me? This idea of triumphing and winning through love and forgiveness. It's shocking. It's alarming. But it's turned the world upside down for those who've embraced it and followed it. This world is a completely different place than it was 2,000 years prior to this. And I don't mean because of technology or changes in geography or, or maps. I'm talking about the things that have appeared on the scene since this gospel emerged in this world. Things that we'd never even thought of before, like hospitals and orphanages and things like that. The effect of this gospel that is revealed through this self-sacrificial giving love, which has transformed so much. That's the, that's the kind of power we're talking about. Not this other petty power that's here today and gone tomorrow. We're talking about a power that lasts. Like Paul said, there's three things at play here that remain. Faith, hope, and anybody know? And love, charity, love. The greatest of these is love. Why? Well, faith is going to be fulfilled one day. Hope comes to its completion. But love? Well, there's no boundary on that. That keeps going. That never, ever stops. If we believe that Jesus has conquered through love, then that same love will overcome the world through us as we follow him. That's the confidence. That's the hope that we have. That's what we want to lean into as his followers. Right on? Everybody love me still? Okay, cool. You don't have to say it. You don't. <laughs> Father, we thank you. If you guys wouldn't mind, if you're able to, if you'll stand with me. Father, we thank you so much for what it is that you've revealed in your word to us. And Lord, we find ourselves, uh, we find ourselves like, like today, confronted with something that's puzzling and troubling, but there is something ineffable that draws us to this as well. And I, I pray, Father, that you by your Spirit will work on that in us. That you'll lead us, lead us into this practice of laying down our lives for one another. This practice of living sacrificially for you. Because we believe with all of our hearts that you have overcome the world. And that the brokenness that we see in this present state isn't worthy of comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us as we hold fast to you and follow your ways. So help us, Father. Help us to do that. We pray that you encourage every person here, Lord. Encourage us by your Spirit into steadfastness. Give us stamina. Give us strength. Give us courage to move forward in you. Again, Lord, we bring uh, Haiti to your remembrance, and we ask you to help and intervene there and put on our hearts a heart to help the, those who are in need and demonstrate your grace to them. We pray all these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
no place I'd rather be. There's no place I'd rather be than hearing your love, hearing your love to set a fire down in my soul that I can't contain, I can't control. Oh, oh, oh. 
grandson by the way uh so i want to remind you that uh kim is going to be around if you have any other questions about haiti if you want to uh give alternately to that uh and uh as we said before 100 percent of the offerings that we receive today is going to be going to the mission work over there so let's speak this blessing on each other before we bail out of here remember to carry the kingdom with you wherever we go whoops May the peace of the Lord Christ be with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness, protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again to these doors. Go in peace, you children of God.